and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I continue my look back at some of the highlights of Hong Kong Heritage in 2019. The Swedish legend that is Anders Nelson came to Hong Kong at the age of four and made Hong Kong his home. The son of Swedish missionaries, Anders Nelson would start his music career as part of the popular 1960s band The Continentals, made up largely of students from the King George V School, or KG5, including the writer Martin Booth, who wrote the childhood memoir Guaylo. Here, Anders Nelson talks about the music that first influenced him as a teenager at the family home in the hills above Sha Tin. My father had an enormous old radio the size of the average huge uh, sideboard and uh, i would sneak down in the middle of the night there were no earplugs earphones earbuds back back in those days so my ear was plastered to the speaker so as not to wake them up so what would you listen to i would listen to anything and everything and would then, it have been elvis or? well i just through that i discovered the American bases stations, and of course every ship in the Seventh Fleet had their onboard radio station. Yes, I, I actually heard pre-Elvis rock and roll, the, the real Little Richard doing rather than the cleaned up, slightly cleaned up Elvis version or the even more cleaned up Pat Boone version of the same song. By the time he got to Pat Boone, it was, oh, boom, 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 and that, you know. But the first time I heard that kind of music and the blues and John Lee Hooker and, and Muddy Waters. Give me a bit of John Lee Hooker then. Oh. oh. What would that be? Da, 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 da. You got dimples <laughs> on your jaw. You got them dimples on your jaw. Yeah. <laughs> Anders Nelson and John Lee Hooker there. Lindsay Varty is a homegrown Hong Konger who also plays professional rugby. She's also passionate about the Hong Kong streets that she loves and recently put together a lovely book called Sunset Survivors about the disappearing tradespeople and artisans, particularly around the Day area. Photographer Gary Jones provided the images and Lindsay the words for this book published by local outfit Blacksmith Books. Here, Lindsay walks along a street in Yamaday and describes the scene and why not all the artisans she interviewed are sad that their businesses are disappearing. I'd say that about 80% of the people that I interviewed were just very realistic about the fate of their industries and their businesses. They're very well aware that their business was probably, would probably die with them. They're 70, 80 years old running these businesses. Their children and grandchildren have absolutely zero intention of continuing their business. These people were very happy that their children had been to university and got much higher level of education than they had and they were becoming bankers, lawyers, businessmen. They're incredibly happy that their children could make a better salary and not have to work as intensively and as hard as they did so that they could have better lives. They're very proud of their children for doing that. And in that sense, they were okay that their business would die with them. And also, anybody that has been to university probably doesn't want to follow into a business like that. So they struggle to find any apprentices to pass down the, the business to. But I think the sad thing 
for those that were sad about it was that sometimes the the practice or the skill would be lost. It's not so much the business itself, but that nobody wanted to continue to learn the skill. You know, the birdcage maker, for example, was very sad that the art of birdcage making would probably be lost in the next five to ten years because he is the last man in Hong Kong that knows how to hand make a birdcage from start to finish, and nobody wanted to learn from him. And he took such pride in having learned from two masters himself that he said that he could never be a master like those people were because nobody wanted to learn from him. So it's a very bittersweet tale. But just wanted to say, as we walk down this street here, it just really makes me justify the reason why I chose Yamate for this tour because you're walking past these traditional sort of the metal shutters that you see all around Hong Kong. You see the metal old-style letterboxes on all of the sort of buildings as we walk past. There's piles of durian, piles of lychee and long'an everywhere. And then there's boxes and, and crates and trolleys going by. There's ladies fixing things on sewing machines and people selling things out the front of their shops. There's paper effigy makers with their, their handmade paper effigy creations spilling out onto the shops outside. I just, I find this street so interesting. And, you know, if you walk through Central, even though it's, it's beautiful, you're walking past Coach, Prada, Gucci, these whilst amazing things and expensive shops, they're not truly representative of Hong Kong, but I feel like this street is such a, a great representation of Hong Kong. Lindsay Marty there, the author of Sunset Survivors. At the beginning of June, it was 30 years since the Tiananmen Massacre, when the People's Liberation Army cracked down on pro-democracy student demonstrators who had gathered for weeks in Tiananmen Square. Hundreds, if not thousands of people, were killed on the square and in surrounding streets overnight on June 3rd to 4th. In this segment, we hear from four people. Tim Luard, who was based as a BBC correspondent in Beijing at the time. So we hear his report from June 1989. Then long-time politician and social activist Lee Chuk-yan talks to me about how he was in Tiananmen Square at the time with other Hong Kong people who were helping with logistics and supplies. Former RTHK political reporter Francis Moriarty then talks to me about how he had just arrived in Hong Kong and witnessed a silent march during a typhoon in the wake of the massacre. And Hugh Chiverton, head of English language programmes at RTHK, tells me about how they reacted at the radio station here at Broadcast Drive in Kowloon Tong. Much of the worst violence was in outlying districts where hospitals said they couldn't cope with the numbers of gunshot wounds. One small hospital alone reported 300 casualties. As dawn broke, several hours after the troops moved in, soldiers in tanks and armoured troop carriers were firing pot shots at youths, throwing stones at them in the foreign embassy quarter. Diplomats reported that two members of an American television crew had been beaten up by soldiers and taken away at gunpoint. Crowds gathered on street corners later, shaking their heads in disbelief. One man cycling to work said he saw three bodies lying on the ground near the National Communist Party headquarters, where troops were continuing to fire volleys into the air to drive away the occasional lingering demonstrator. Students were asking the people of Peking to strike in protest at the military action. Much of the morning traffic consisted of military vehicles and ambulances. State radio quoted a commentary by the Liberation Army Daily saying the troops had moved in to protect the people of Peking. Since the Prime Minister Li Peng declared martial law two weeks ago, Chinese leaders have said repeatedly that the army would not be used against the people. It's likely to be some time before the political effects of the night's events become fully clear. But as the nation awakens to the horror of what has happened, 
some foreign diplomats are saying that they can only conclude, as the power struggle of the past week deepened, that army leaders simply lost patience and decided to stage what amounted to a coup. I was there on June 3rd,、uh, and I remember that I was visiting、uh, at that time the tent of the workers,、uh, because of course, as a unionist in Hong Kong,、uh, I have a particular role of supporting the workers' movement because that's the first autonomous workers' organization in China since、uh, 1949, and、uh, we hope that the workers can get organized and become an independent union. But of course, our aspiration for independent union was immediately crushed. On that night, because I think around about ten or eleven, I was talking to the workers there, and suddenly saw everyone rise up and left the tent and said to me that you know you go away because the army are coming in. We are out to try to block the army from coming in into the square. So everyone left, and and then of course I also go out and then saw it's a chaotic situation when everyone is trying to run to the Tiananmen Chang'an Street because. The the saying is everyone at that time heard that the army had already started shooting at the people and tanks are rolling in、uh, from two side of the Chang'an Street, the main road in、uh, Beijing, and the people told me that you must go back, not to remain in the square. So I decided I went back to the Beijing Hotel, which is just actually outside the、uh, Chang'an Street. That's the night is、uh, very dark nights of massacre. You heard a lots of gunshots. And、uh, lots of noise, and people are running, and then you suddenly saw the Tiananmen Square dark, the whole Tiananmen Square, the lights gone off, and then you are thinking, what is happening in the square? And then the dawn come, and then you start to see people with、uh, the rickshaw driver trying to move the bodies into the hospital, and then you see body、uh, on the rickshaw on the tricycle, and then you start、uh, seeing the tanks coming in. From the view of the Beijing Hotel, so you know the army had gone in. As I was the newbie on the on the desk in in Hong Kong, I had to go out and cover the demonstrations in Hong Kong. So I covered two million person marches.、Uh, everybody marching in silence.、Uh, people who were elderly in wheelchairs. People who looked like they'd have a hard time getting up and down the stairs. Walking from Central all the way down the Eastern、uh, Expressway. Coming back around to the old NCNA New China News Agency Xinhua office in Happy Valley, on the corner of Queens Road East, and it was very impressive. Marching in silence, all you can hear are feet and occasional crying of a kid, and and I thought, well, these folks are these folks are pretty awesome, right? And then in the midst of this, when martial law was imposed in Beijing, there was a big demonstration outside Xinhua. It was also a real, honest to goodness Typhoon Eight. I mean, it was the real. Deal with all the rain, and by the time I walked from my house in Happy Valley, I, I wasn't working, but I thought I have to see this. And by the time I got to the intersection, I think someplace between forty and eighty thousand people were out there for the demonstration. And I'm basically soaked through, and I'm trying to keep my notebook dry. And at one point in the middle of this, I think it was Chen Mengkong. Subsequently, he would become one of the first group of legislators to be elected. He stood up and said. Let's show our solidarity with the people in Beijing. Put down your umbrellas and take the hoods off your head. Everybody takes off the hood. Everybody puts down the umbrellas, and they're standing there in driving rain. And and I'm trying to take notes under my little worthless poncho. And I hear around me, and people are putting up umbrellas over me. 
And I said, oh, no, it's okay. I'll stand here with everybody else and whatever. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to tell our story. And I still have the notebook with the water splatters on it. There was a general strike that was called, or a kind of day of mourning. Every car was driving around with a little black flag on the aerial. And then on the day where there was a sort of uh, general strike, which the government just sort of stepped back basically and said, OK, do what you like, we're not going to punish anyone. It was felt that we should keep going at RTHK because we were kind of an essential service. But what we did, and this was just kind of the employees spontaneously, more or less, we had a little ceremony. So we went out into Broadcast Drive, into the road, and everyone just basically went out there and bowed three times to the north in tribute to them. So it was a very, very moving, it was a very, very moving, psychologically charged time for everybody in Hong Kong. Graham Earnshaw is the publisher behind Earnshaw Books, which comes up with some interesting Hong Kong and Greater China topics. Graham is a big fan of the 19th century British traveller Isabella Bird and has republished several of her works, including The Golden Chazonaires and The Way Thither and The Yangtze and Beyond. Isabella Bird was nothing short of intrepid. She would travel solo and then hire a team on arrival and would develop her photographs by just using the open-air darkness as her darkroom. She produced some great travelogues and interesting images. These days, the Three Gorges Dam has changed the landscape of the Yangtze, but back in the time of Isabella Bird, the only way for your boat to get through the treacherous rocks and rapids was by using trackers, men who were, by all accounts, in slave-like conditions, working from morning till night, pulling these boats along the Yangtze by rope and sometimes getting dragged in themselves, while the boat passengers would walk alongside. Here, Peter Simpson, a journalist and fan of Isabella Bird, reads her account of the Yangtze Rapids. The crews, which in big chunks number 120 men, are engaged at Yichang. For the upward voyage, lasting from 30 to 50 days, they get about four shillings in their food, which is three meals a day of rice, with cabbage fried in a liberal supply of grease, and a little fish or pork on rare occasions. And for coming down, which rarely takes more than 10 days... I did it in a Wupan in a little over four, about 18 pence in food. And indeed, many crews work their passage down for food only. For this pittance, these men do the hardest and riskiest work I have seen done in any country. Inhumanely hard, as Consul Bourne calls it, week after week, from early dawn to sunset. The opening of Chungking as a treaty port and various other causes have tended, however, to raise their wages. The larger number of these trackers are usually on shore hauling, being directed from the junk either by flag signals or drumbeat under the Tai Kung's direction. A proportion remain on board to work the huge bow sweep, at which I have seen as many as 15 straining. A few attend the trackers to extricate the tow rope from the rocks, in which it is constantly catching and two or more Taiwan tea or water trackers especially expert swimmers, and without clothing, run ahead of the tow rope, ready to plunge into the water and free it when it catches among rocks which cannot be reached from the shore. If tracking and sailing are both impossible, the trackers propel the junk by great oars, each worked by two men, twenty at a side, who face forwards and mark time by combined stamp and a wild chant. 
In descending, in order to keep steerage way on the junk in a current running from 6 to 12 knots an hour, every agency of progression is brought into play. The slinging of the mast alongside gives a lumbering, ungainly look. The deck is literally crowded with men, naked in summer and in winter clothed in long blue cotton coats. Some are rowing face forwards. Fifteen or more are straining for life at the bow sweep. Others are working the huge oars called the cho or the wheel, each of which demands the energies of ten men. Others are toiling at ulos, big broad bladed skulls, worked over the stern or parallel to the junk side. Even women and children take part in the effort. The Lao Pan grows frantic. He yells, leaps, dances. Drums and gongs are madly beaten, and yet, with all this frantic effort, it is all the junk can do to keep steerage way enough to clear the dangerous places, and not always that. As I saw on two occasions, junks fly down rapids, strike rocks, and disappear as unconnected masses of timbers, as if exploded by dynamite. Peter Simpson there, reading an account from 19th century traveller Isabella Bird in her book The Yangtze Valley and Beyond, which has been republished by Earnshaw Books with a new foreword by Graham Earnshaw. The Hong Kong Maritime Museum on Pier 8 has both temporary and permanent exhibitions showcasing different aspects of maritime history. I joined Libby Chan, the Assistant Director for Curatorial and Collections at the museum, to look at a small permanent exhibition called Humans and the Ocean. Here, Libby Chan talks about the advent of steam. This is indeed like a steam machine. That's a model. Oh, I see. So this is a model of something far bigger. Yeah, so it's a much far bigger that would be put in the steamship. So because of the usage of the steam, so that steamships can carry people much further and faster. When does steam really come in? Steam that would be like after the Industrial Revolution and when the steamships would be popular, that would be around the early or mid-19th century mm. when the steamships were built and then uh, kind of uh, become a fashion. And we had an exhibition called American Traders in China a uh, half years ago that also showing some beautiful vests that has embroidery of steamships. And people would put steamships on their fashion. So because it's so fashionable, it's so advanced at that time. Former Marine Commander Les Bird has recently written a memoir of his 20 years in the Marine Police beginning in 1976. Many of us remember in the early 1990s the speedboats that would chase up the Tolo Channel and out to the mainland, smuggling in particular cars and electronic goods. The last part of Les Bird's career was spent heading up the special boat unit, tasked with intercepting those dieface and smuggling outfits. Here he describes just how fast they were at stealing cars and some of the tactics they would use. Yeah, the, the speed in which those uh, Daife slick operations uh, happen can be exemplified by a case I was involved in. We intercepted a Daife on the eastern side of Merce Bay, very, very close to the Chinese border. Um, and when we stopped it, it had a Mercedes-Benz in the Daife. We stopped it, overpowered the crew, and they'd been so quick at the pier that they'd actually left the keys in the car and the engine was still running so it was literally pier to dive and off and no one had had time to actually turn the, the ignition off 
So we did a quick radio check back to Marine Police Headquarters with the number of the, the car. He did a quick vehicle check and then called the number that the car was registered in. And the guy who answered the phone, it was about two in the morning, by the way, um, he answered the phone and, they, and he, the, the Marine controller said, um, your car has just been found. And the guy said, no, I've just put it in the garage downstairs about 45 minutes ago. And this was in Kowloon. And the Marine controller said, no, no it's not. Would you mind going and checking? And he thought he was being hoaxed or something and it took a little bit of persuasion eventually went downstairs got out of bed went downstairs came back and said my car's missing and the marine controller said no it's not missing we know where it is it's in Mers Bay not close to the Chinese border it had taken them about an hour hour and 15 minutes to actually steal the car in Kowloon and it was just entering to, into Chinese waters so that's an example of how quick they were after the gate was put in across Tolo Channel to stop them that didn't actually stop them. Uh, it stopped the die phase, but the smuggling syndicates came up with different ideas on how to try and beat us. So one day, a fishing vessel approached and requested permission to go through. He produced his, his documents. He, everything was in order. So how did you move the gate? Um, oh, it was a, a chain uh, pulley that just stretched across the, the, the gap, if you like. And if someone had tried to, to, to go over it, they would have ripped their propellers off. But you could, you could open and close it. So this fishing vessel requested, everything was in order. He was waved through. And as he was going through, the policeman at the gate noticed that his stern was a little bit low in the water. It looked a bit odd. And they asked him to come back. So he came back and he said, oh, look, it's because my nets are down. I'm, I'm, I'm fishing before I go out. They didn't buy that. So they lifted, made him lift his nets out. And what was in his net initially, they thought, was a whale. It was a huge black thing. And they made him put it on the deck and open it up, and it was, it was a neoprene bag. And inside the bag was a Mercedes-Benz saloon. <laughs> it had been towed under the water, completely dry, in the neoprene bag. It became known as the car in the condom case. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> That's a great story. So when was that? Uh, just after the barrier went in, so that would be 1991 or 1992. Former Marine Commander Lesbird there. His memoir is called A Small Band of Men, An Englishman's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police. And last but not least, at RTHK, we have the Guinness World Record holder for the world's most durable DJ. He's quite incredible. Ray Cadero, or Uncle Ray, turned 95 earlier this month, though he really doesn't look it. And he also marked a stupendous 70 years in broadcasting. He first began with Rediffusion in 1949. So here's a quick salute to Uncle Ray, who still does three hours later on weekday evenings at the studio, though he's currently on a well-deserved month off. <laughs> Hello. Have you heard of Hong Kong? I've heard of it, but I'm very bad at geography, so uh, I, I reckon it's in China, isn't it? Just sort of, it's just on the neck, on the shores of China, really. Crown British colony. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I've been... Actually, the funny thing was, I, we got some... Uh, magazines from Hong Kong, you know, we were reading them. The only thing is you've got to read them backwards, haven't you? 
Well, if you're in Chinese characters, maybe. <laughs> they, they were in Chinese characters. Oh, it is. And the ones I read, you have to read them backwards. Because we thought, well, we're on the back of this magazine. We thought we were on the back cover, but in fact oh, it was the front cover. Yeah. During my time with RTHK, well, in those days it was RHK, there's no TV yet. I crossed over from Rediffusion to, to, to Radio Hong Kong in Central. And in front of... Uh, Radio Hong Kong was a city hall, just a brand new building, you know, with beautiful uh, concert halls and all that. But we were in the Electra House and then Mercury House. It changed the name all the time. Uh, we had about four or six floors of Mercury House, Radio Hong Kong. And our concert hall there was not big enough. It was something like for six, 60 people, that's about a limit. And I ran a live show for teenagers called Lucky Dip. The idea of this show is to let the teenagers improve in their English and give them an opportunity to read from uh, from the script, which they ne never have. So as uh, so I said, well, let's let's try it that way. So lucky it was like a, a barrel with all the letters. In those days, there were there were no emails and no all that. We just they write letters to request songs. And all the rest get into this lucky barrel, lucky dip barrel. And then, uh, I will come around with this lucky dip barrel and they will pick a song, pick a letter, and they will read from, from what they, uh, what, what's in the letter. And, uh, that's how they, they will, be, well, maybe, maybe future DJs, you know, and they can, they can read songs and the, the dedication and all that. And that, that's how they learn their English. Each uh, series is 13 programs, and they went for four series, and uh, Radio Hong Kong's concert hall was too small. It, got, it was so crowded that we had to rent the City Hall Theatre because there were about 400 people, and it was packed every week. It was packed. People were waiting on the outside for the tickets and all to get in. I remember when I've interviewed you previously, you were telling me about Emily Lau as a teenager on your show. <laughs> oh, she was a horrible kid. That's to me. Like like now, she would just open her mouth and say what she wants to say. And in those days, as a teenager, she was amongst the the, the most the naughtiest of the bunch, she will try to grab the microphone to say something, and I have to grab the microphone back from her. <laughs> That's Emily Lau for you. <laughs> if you're listening for your own pleasure, give me your top five. First of all, I have to pick the, the performer, the singer, and then I've got to pick the song. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned on my show, I say if I was stranded in a desert island and was asked to only bring one song with me, what would it be? And I said, well, I thought, oh, I said, definitely it's got to be The Very Thought of You by Tony Bennett. For a simple reason that Tony Bennett sang so well in that, in that song. It's a Ray Noble composition, by the way. And the Bobby Hackett was on the cornet. And Bobby is such a perfect professional trumpet player. He will play his part, not interfering with Tony's voice. And it's so well blend together that, that it's a beautiful, beautiful arrangement, beautiful song, and that would be the song I'll sing with me to my to my island, desert island. <laughs> the very thought of you And I forget to do
the little ordinary things that everyone ought to do. I'm living in a kind of daydream. Uncle Ray there, who just celebrated his 95th birthday. What a legend. So that was 2019. Thank you for your support as listeners. What a rich city we have in terms of its history and heritage. And join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.